Hey folks, this is Scott. Just a few words before we start. You know, every week I get the most amazing emails from you, the fans, saying things like, your podcasts help encourage me and give me hope. Or as one person said, I'm encouraged and inspired by the fact that you're pushing the permaculture discourse well beyond the realm of gardening. See, I know the Permaculture Podcast is more than just the interviews and creative efforts behind the scenes. This show is where listeners have found that the more people they hear on the podcast, the more human and connected we become. The more meaning we make of our lives, the more meaningfully we live. So, the Permaculture Podcast is a labor of love. We have three people currently as part of the podcast team, mostly unpaid or barely paid, making the podcast happen, creating the newsletter, getting out to live events, replying to email, answering phone calls, and much more. But we, the Permaculture Podcast team, just don't have enough income for this venture to cover a living wage payroll, equipment upgrades, website maintenance, podcast bandwidth, expenses for going on the road to capture live interviews, and so on. That's why right now, we're doing a Keep the Permaculture Podcast running campaign. With that, we're asking you to keep in mind that when you support the show, that this isn't a multinational corporation. The conversations you hear here are not the kind of broadcasts you'll find anywhere else. It's not the same formulaic talking points or pre-prepared answers. We dig in deep and find the honesty and candor to create the world we want to live in. This show is part of the permaculture community and the broader movement to make a difference for Earth and ourselves. Together we sit down and hear the stories of others, not just the latest sound bites. What you hear is what helped to make us who we are as human beings. Stories that go from lips to ear. One person to another. Real people sharing their truths, their experiences from their own lives. The more we listen and share, the more connected we are to each other and to the world. As I've heard from many of you, it is essential that we keep the Permaculture Podcast running. Please help us do that. Visit thepermaculturepodcast.com support and make a one-time donation or become a recurring member. Now, here's the show. Welcome to the 17th new episode of 2017, Planning for Future Generations. In this episode, David Bilbrey is in the host seat with Fred Kirschman. Fred returns to share more about his work at the Aldo Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture at Iowa State University and the Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture. Through this conversation, Fred talks about how those two places are working to allow us to plan not only for the world we have now, but also for our descendants. The solutions come in multiple forms, from the ways we can use plants in our fields to increase yields while regenerating soil, and the cultural changes that are coming as the children and grandchildren of the baby boomer generation reject consumerism and focus on a more community-centered life. Enjoy this conversation between David and Fred, and I'll join you again afterwards. This is David Bilbrey with EcoThinkIt.com, and I'm here with Fred Kirschenman. Uh, he was a national and international leader in sustainable agriculture. He shares an appointment as a distinguished fellow for the Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture at Iowa State University and as a president of Stone Barnes Center for Food and Agriculture. He also continues to manage his family's 800-acre certified organic farm in south-central North Dakota. Welcome, Fred. Well, it's my pleasure. Always great to uh, connect with you. I really enjoyed our first conversation at the... Uh, Land Institute last fall, and got we have some great feedback off of that interview, so thanks for the, taking the time to do that. 
So where we left off there was you uh, you were talking about how we need to live with the consideration of future generations, and that means not just humans. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about what that means? Well, I think that, in my experience at least, you know, we're at a significant kind of turning point now. By we, I mean, you know, the whole living community on the planet. And, and I know that sounds uh, kind of crazy, but humans, of course, have dominated the planet, or at least that was their agenda to dominate the planet, well, ever since, uh, basically, since the beginning of the 1900s. And, you know, the culture for that developed actually earlier than that with uh, a number of people in the Enlightenment period, et cetera, and it was kind of understood in that perspective and understood historically from that that we had kind of allowed ourselves to be dominated by certain ideologies, by the church, et cetera. And so when the Enlightenment movement started, it wanted to extract itself from that. But it then took this position that the earth was simply kind of a collection of objects, and it was our responsibilities as humans, you know, to dominate that and to make the earth do what we wanted to do in our own benefit. And so we've kind of been on that on that trajectory. And it's been, it especially has influenced, you know, our, our modern agriculture system in which, and even today, even in sustainable agriculture, sometimes now referred to as intensive sustainable agriculture, that what we need to do is simply rev up the technologies that we've been using and using them in a more effective way in order to achieve our goals and our ends. But the thing that we fail to recognize in that is that that whole culture and that whole way of relating to nature was based on the assumption that the the inputs that we needed in order to accomplish that were unlimited and were always going to be available. And I think that, you know, anybody that's paying attention now to the kind of inputs that we've been using, especially in regard to food and agriculture, uh, you know, it's a our whole food system is is uh, based in fossil fuels, and uh, we're extracting the fossil fuels. Anybody can predict how long we'll still have them, depending on how much more fracking we do, et cetera. But at some point, the fossil fuel—I mean, fossil fuels are a limited resource; they're not going to be there. And this is also true of some of the minerals, like rock phosphate, and we talked about that on the in our last uh, conversation as well. Mm -hmm. But the thing that that means now, as we think about our future, is that we have to think about how not only we humans, but the rest of the biotic community on which we're dependent, how we're going to relate to each other in order to accomplish what we need to accomplish, not only in terms of to survive, but in, um, in terms of, you know, a term which I like, which I'm seeing, beginning to see in sustainable agriculture, is the term flourishing. You know, how can we flourish under these new circumstances? So that's the big challenge that we have to confront now. Right. You know, you were, there's a quote that I pulled from a book I've been reading. The book's called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmer, who's a Native American yeah. and a scientist. But she's quoting Thomas Berry, who I know you're a, a fan of. And he says, we must say of the universe that it is a community of subjects, not just a yeah. collection of objects. So right. It, right. you mentioned that. So can you talk a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, well, you know, and Aldo Leopold, of course, who is one of my heroes, he made this point as well, that in one of his essays, he said that we have to recognize that we are not the conquerors of what he called the land community. And what he meant by land community was the entire biological uh, system in which we live. You know, so it's the microbes in the soil, it's the earthworms, it's 
it's the the insects, it's the you know the whole living community is the land community, and that we humans are not the conquerors of that community. We're simply plain members and citizens. In other words, we have to learn what our role is in this kind of collaborative, interconnected biological system which is the life on the planet, and we're simply a part of that. And so part of what we have to learn is how we fit into that in a way that the whole system can flourish. That's the big cultural transformation that we have to make. And you know, the, the good news is that we know a lot about how to do that already because there have been people in our history, not just uh, older Leopold, but you know, a number of others, uh, Sir Albert Howard. I mean, there are a number of, uh, number of people who have already understood a long time ago that we have to learn how we can become a part of a thriving biological community rather than, you know, how we can uh, force it to do what we want it to do. So what are some examples of that that you've seen that were, that kind of stand out? Well, there's, uh, you know, uh, and I don't want to seem self-promoting here, but, you know, one of the things that I've been excited about in terms of my own life is my involvement, you know, out, out at the Stone Barn Center in New York. And this is uh, an 80-acre structure that, and about half of that are woodlands, and the other half is an agriculture system where we produce, you know, all of the food, well, not all of the food, but a, a good portion of the food that gets served in the restaurant that's on our grounds there. But that whole system has been designed now in terms of, you know, how we can produce food from that ecological community and do it in a way that the whole community gets renewed and regulated, you know, as, as a part of the system rather than by bringing inputs in from outside to force it to do what we want it to do. And, you know, after now, we've been working on that uh, since, uh, I think, about 2004. And we've demonstrated now that this can be done, you know, and it gets back to a large extent in terms of what Sir Albert Howard referred to as the law of return, where, you know, everything that we use to restore the health of the soil, et cetera, comes from the wastes that are, you know, part of that community, so it gets returned back into it. And that's that's the core issue. It's the biodiversity that's necessary in order to do that, and then, you know, making the system as regenerative so that John Takara, and I think I mentioned that in our last talk too, John mm -hmm. Takara in his, uh, in his new book, How to Thrive in the Next Economy, he makes the distinction, which I've always liked, is that he said, uh, this is not about unlimited economic growth. This new way of being engaged with nature is all about regenerating life on Earth. And so if we begin to recognize that the way that we need to relate to all of the rest of the living community is by figuring out how we can play our role to regenerate life on Earth, then that's the ultimate answer to uh, your question. You know, and it's not just what we're doing. The, the, the interesting thing about, you know, Stone, Stone Barns has now become so popular that we're getting requests from everywhere about how can we learn more from what you're doing that we can do it, you know, in our own areas. So these, this model, this approach, this new approach is certainly beginning to happen. To me, the big challenge is that if we don't make this kind of transformation in time to dramatically reduce, you know, our carbon, et cetera, that we're putting into the atmosphere, which is, you know, causing the climate change problem, then, you know, most of the scientists at least are saying that if we don't do this fairly soon, then we'll get to a point where the planet is no longer going to support the life of the human species. 
So we have a limited amount of time to do this. And, and so I'm very encouraged by the fact that we're learning how to do this. There are examples out there doing it, but can we do it in a way that really, you know, sequesters more carbon uh, out of the environment and makes it so that the planet and the climate of the planet that's going to be necessary to sustain, you know, the kind of life that we have on the planet now, that's going to be the big challenge for us. So do we need to have places like the Stone Barn Center in every region or every state to, to really spread those ideas and that sort of a living example? Well, I think what I'm saying is that there, it, the Stone Barns is not the only one that's doing that. I mean, these, these are still mostly, I mean, there are a lot of, again, one of the things that excites me is that, and I don't want to romanticize the millennial generation, but there are a significant number of young people in the millennial generation who understand what I've just mentioned and that you know, their interest is no longer, you know, trying to extract as much wealth for themselves uh, as possible from their communities. What they're interested in is how do we do this together for the common good? And they understand that in order to do this, they have to really redesign the food system in terms of, you know, the core of it being soil health and how do they manage soil for health, et cetera. And again, the, the thing that I find, and I've just been learning this uh, in the last uh, couple of years, is that some of our major food companies now are beginning to recognize this because this millennial generation are the future consumers, and they're, and they're already, to some extent, the consumers presently that they have to respond to. And so you have companies like General Mills and uh, Unilever, you know, who are already beginning to figure out how to make this transformation so that the food which they put out there for their consumers, you know, comes from healthy soil and has these, not only these kinds of benefits in terms of health-promoting benefits for the food that people eat, but also for the longer-term health of the ecological communities in which we all live. So that's underway, and that's beginning to happen. But, you know, again, we have a limited time frame here. Right. Well, and with a large companies like that, I guess, how do you know if what they're doing is, is trustworthy and really taking care of the farmer, small farmers and that kind of thing? That would be a big question I would have. Yeah, well, and that, and again, you know, we're still, I mean, the, the transition is really, you know, as, as Takara put it, how do we thrive in the next economy? And that's, that's an issue that uh, these companies have to deal with. And, you know, I happen to serve on the uh, Sustainable Ag uh, Committee of uh, Unilever, and so I'm part of a group, I think there's uh, 10 of us on that now. And uh, we get together and meet with the management staff from time to time. So we've been trying to, you know, encourage them to move more quickly in terms of the kind of directions I've just been talking about. But they're also caught in a difficulty because they're dealing with all these other companies. And they're saying, you know, the market's not quite ready for us to do that yet. And so we said, okay, we understand. We're also realists and we realize that, you know, you have to be able to have a be functioning in a in a market that sustains you from a market perspective but we also have to begin imagining what kinds of changes we need to make so that we can move in those directions especially as uh, you know the consumers begin to recognize that this is in their interest to move in this kind of direction and that they need to be ready as a, from a market perspective to make this kind of transition in the food system that's amazing that they have <laughs> that they have a group w with people like you on it at a company of that size. That's really encouraging. Well, and it's been fascinating. But uh, you know, I I also try to, as a farmer, you know, I've understood for a long time that it's difficult for farmers to make the kind of transition at the farm level that I think we need to make. 
because, well, if I, if I just give you an example, in Iowa, you know, at the Leopold Center here, we started to do research on cover crops about 10 years ago. And when we did, you know, there were so many people, and especially farmers, who said to us, why are you using these limited resources that you have for research on a crop that no farmer's ever going to grow because no farmer's ever going to grow a crop they can't harvest, you know, because cover crops you don't harvest, you use it, you know, to restore the biological health of soil. We also have funded some research of a researcher here at Iowa State University that was not only including cover crops, but also demonstrated the benefits of diversity. And so he had a, he has a research plot, which now for 10 years, he's been showing that if you compare the results of a two-crop rotation, which is what mostly in Iowa is now, it's corn and beans, you know, with synthetic inputs. And then you compare that to a three-crop rotation where he still has corn and beans, but that he includes a small grain with a cover crop in the small grain. And then another plot where he has a four-crop rotation, which is corn and beans, and then a small grain with alfalfa, and then a second year of alfalfa. And he's demonstrated now consistently after 10 years that when you go to that three-crop and four-crop rotation, you can reduce your fertilizer and pesticide input by almost 90%, and you can maintain your yields. So you have all of these benefits. But you take this information, and, and I've done this, and you talk to a farmer and say, you know, why, with, with all these benefits, why wouldn't you do this? And, of course, the first thing the farmer's going to tell you is, what the hell am I going to do with the small grain and the alfalfa? I can't take it to a local elevator and sell it. And, of course, they're right, because the market infrastructure now, the local elevators only buy corn and soybeans. So if you're raising anything else, then you've got to figure out a way to haul it 200 miles to find a, an outlet that'll buy it. So those are the kinds of constraints. So we really have to redesign the system in order to uh, enable people to really move in that direction. This is also true. It's not only true of farmers, it's true of uh, companies as well. So is there a market for those things and just not a way to get it, get them out to the market? Or is it, does the market need to be developed more as well? Well, this is why I like to think about this in terms of the larger transformation. You know, this isn't just about doing one or two things. This is about redesigning the system and... So, you know, these highly specialized commodity food and agriculture systems that we've designed and have basically been, you know, at least since, uh, since the end of the Second World War, that's been the direction we've taken everything. And it was based on this notion that to be successful in the industrial economy, it's about maximum efficient production for short-term economic return. And, of course, the way you accomplish that is you specialize because specialized systems are easier and more efficient in a sense to manage. So you specialize your system, you simplify the management because you don't want to have complex things to deal with. You want to make sure that you can just put those input in and then, you know, it's uh, what Eustace von Liebig referred to as the law of the minimum. So you want the minimum input for the maximum output. And so that's the system that we designed and so we have to now begin to recognize that all the inputs that made that system possible are now in a state of depletion. And as they become depleted, as we're starting to see, the costs go up. And then also when you have these specialized systems, which is not the way nature functions, and so as a result, you have unintended negative consequences, you know, like the resistance that gets uh, developed for the inputs that we use, and then they're no longer effective. And then you've got you've to buy new inputs that, you know, are not resistant. And each time you do that, the resistance develops more rapidly, and then you get to a point where, you know, the, the costs become difficult. And this is why now, as I want to go back to the cover crop issue, even though 
we did all of this research for cover crops, there was very little adoption of it until just in the last three years. And just in the last three years in Iowa, now over 600,000 acres in Iowa have cover crops included. And the primary reason is because farmers are experiencing these increased costs in buying the inputs in order to maintain that highly specialized system. And when they include the cover crops, they can reduce those costs. And then that makes it economically more desirable for them to begin to include cover crops. So again, those are the system is going to, because the maximum efficient production for short-term economic return is reaching a point where it can't be sustained even in the marketplace, but it can't be sustained ecologically. And so we're going to see these kinds of changes take place. The real concern that I have is will we make those changes rapidly enough now in order to reduce, you know, our carbon, et cetera, into the environment and uh, so that we begin to bring a climate change issue under control. That's the, that's the big challenge in front of us. Now, how do we bring that about, about rapidly enough? Is it a, on a federal level we need to change things, on a local level? Like, what's the, how do we do that? Yeah, what were yeah, the leverage that's, points? That's, yeah. yeah, that's a really great question. And, you know, personally, I'm getting to the point where I don't think that we're going to get those kinds of changes, you know, from the top down. I think they're, you know, and, and, and again, with if you have in just three years have farmers including cover crops in 600,000 acres. Now, that's not a lot given the millions of acres we have in Iowa. But nevertheless, that kind of significant movement and change in just three years, I think, indicates that the changes are going to come from the bottom up. And we're, we're also seeing this with, you know, I mean, there's a growing number of people now in our culture who realize that, and it isn't just about food and agriculture, it's about you know, our whole quality of life on earth. And so when you had the women's march and then you had the science march and had the climate march and, you know, thousands and thousands of people leave their homes, come out to gather with other people and say, look, this is a serious problem. We have to deal with this and, and here's a direction to go in. And so I think that that's beginning to have an impact on the, you know, on the culture that we're in. And it's that culture that's ultimately going to, you know, force the changes you know, in Washington, D.C. and other places. But again, I, I'm not ready to predict that that is going to happen in the time frame that we have. That's, the, you know, that's the big challenge. Right. So I want to go back to what you said about the cover crops for just a quick second. You talked about them reducing their fertilizer use or, right. or herbs yeah. and pesticide by 90%. Even if they didn't do anything with the cover crop, you know, rotation, just composted it, would it matter? Do they need to get it to market if they're saving that much money on the other stuff? Well, again, it depends a lot on how the whole system functions. But one of the other things that, that I get encouraged by is that uh, we keep having new publications now which are dealing with some of these issues. And uh, in terms of agriculture, David Montgomery is coming out with a new book. See, what is today is the 6th of May, so it'll come out, scheduled to come out this coming Tuesday, the 9th of May. And David Montgomery, he teaches at, at Washington University, Washington State University, and he has written about soil and the importance of soil in our culture and our or communities, et cetera, for some time. But he's come out with a new book now, and I've had an opportunity to read it because the publishers wanted me to review it, which I did. So I got a pre-publication version. But the title of the book is Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. And what's amazing about this book is that David Montgomery wrote this book 
based on, I think it was seven or eight farmers that he went to visit and spent several weeks on each of these farms. One of them is uh, Gabe Brown's farm, which you've probably heard of because he's become recognized because of what he's doing as a farmer in North Dakota, who started uh, including cover crops and adding integrated diversity on his farm about 12 years ago. And, and then there's, uh, you know, uh, some other farmers in the Midwest, one farmer in Africa. But all of these farmers is essentially doing the same thing. They have moved away from the kind of, you know, specialized maximum efficient production for short-term economic return and instead have moved to a kind of agriculture where they limit their tillage, they add cover crops in, and they diversify their system and integrate that diversity. And what every one of these farmers has discovered, then when they've made that transition to those three things, they dramatically increase their productivity, they reduce their input costs, and therefore increase their profits. And they have a system now where they're no longer under any pressure to get bigger. You know, the get bigger, get out is absolutely not on their radar screen at all. And if you just take Gabe Brown as an example, Gabe Brown, and, and he's a meticulous record keeper, and he works with Cooperative Extension, who works with him on, on uh, the results of his, of his uh, approach. And in North Dakota, where he farms, you can't include a cover crop in the same year that you raise a cash crop because your growing season is too short. So he uses his cover crop as a, a crop in the rotation, one year in the rotation. And he has uh, his farm, is, if I remember right, it's about a 5,000-acre farm. And he has always had animals on his farm. He's in that right west of the Missouri River. So he's in that short grass prairie region ecology up there. But the, here's the interesting thing. Gabe Brown points out that before he started to do this threefold kind of approach with the, you know, reducing tillage, adding cover crops and diversifying his, his rotation and getting the benefits of that integrated diversification, including the animals, his soil was only able to absorb a half inch of rainwater an hour before he moved to this when he was simply doing, you know, kind of conventional monoculture farming. His soil now absorbs eight inches of rainwater an hour because the quality of his soil has improved to such an extent. And this means that when North Dakota has always been, you know, kind of uncertain about the amount of rain that you get. But when you get too much rain, the soil absorbs. So it doesn't it doesn't collect on the surface and keep you from, you know, getting into the field when you need to. And because it absorbs so much of that moisture, you have more moisture in the soil during the drought period. So it sustains his crops during the drought period. And the other thing that he points out is that and of course, he the system that he uses, he plants the cover crop and he has, I think now, about 30 different varieties of seeds that he uses in the cover crops. And I've been on his farm and those cover crops will grow about three or four feet tall. And then when they reach that point, he then puts his beef cattle in there and mob grazes it. So he puts uh, a large amount of cattle in a short area with an electric fence around it. And then they terminate the cover crop for him. And then, of course, during the time that they're in that mob grazing that, they deposit their urine and the manure, which adds to the quality of the soil. And then he, he moves them onto the, next, uh, onto the next plot. So the cover crop's already terminated. So then he can plant uh, no-till, you know, the next cash crop into that cover crop base. And given that system now, he has demonstrated that instead of costing him which is pretty standard now in, in monoculture corn soybean operations, it now costs farmers almost $4 a bushel in input cost to raise corn. Gabe Brown is now raising corn for $1.44 a bushel. Wow. That's got to speak so, volumes to any any farmer, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. When Growing a Revolution comes out, I'm going to order, you know, probably 25 copies, 
and hand it to farmers who are struggling, you know, now with this, you know, with the costs going up and, and, uh, and, and of course, you know, you have the, what Willard Cochran referred to 30 years ago was the curse of overproduction, you know, and so uh, you overproduce and then the price that you get goes down. So if you're, if you're raising corn now for $4 a bushel in input costs, but you're selling corn on the market for $3 and what, 13 cents a bushel now, you know, if it wasn't for the subsidies, you couldn't do it at all. But even with the subsidies, you're not going to be able to do it forever. So if farmers can take a look at David Montgomery's book based on what farmers are already doing, I think that it can be an, an, at least some kind of, you know, encouragement for them to consider, you know, transitioning to this kind of system. And then when you get back to the climate change issue, when you're farming the way Gabe Brown does, you have a system that sequesters carbon because of the quality of the soil. You're not, you know, putting as much carbon into the atmosphere because you, you have this integrated system uh, rather than a system that constantly puts more carbon into the environment. So I think these are the kinds of things that at least encourage me a little bit. And I don't know whether we're going to have, David Montgomery calls it growing a revolution. And a revolution is what we need. But, you know, this is the kind of information to get back to your original question of why these changes are going to come from the bottom up rather than from the top down. So you mentioned about farm size not being important when you're doing this this more regenerative yeah. way. Is there an ideal farm size for regenerative agriculture or is it kind of very anything from very small to... I don't think that there's an ideal size, which I can say, well, everybody's got to be, uh, you know, 500 acres or whatever, because it depends on where you are. Again, this is why, you know, I think this uh, bioregional concept that John Takara talks about where, you know, people come together and they look at their own bioregion and what the resources in their bioregion are. And then it isn't just people telling farmers this is what you got to do, but it's people working together and trying to decide how they can have a thriving bioregion in the way in which they manage their system in their own region. And then the farm size gets determined by making those decisions in terms of how you can make the whole system a kind of flourishing system. And here again is that, you know, there's another interesting book that you might want to consider is uh, Robert Wolf, who is uh, a journalist, and he lives in Decorah, Iowa. So he's right on the edge of what we refer to as the driftless region out here. And this is a biological region that is a part of Iowa, a little bit of Minnesota and Wisconsin, and I think the, a corner of Illinois. And this is a rural area, and Robert Wolf lives in Decorah, Iowa, so he's a part of that driftless region. And he's written a new book now called, booklet actually, called uh, Building the Agricultural City. And the subtitle is A Handbook for Rural Renewal. And he points out that people in this driftless region now are beginning to recognize that, you know, simply having monoculture agriculture there where you export out, you know, the grain that you grow, and then you have to import in everything that you buy in these rural communities, and the farms keep getting bigger, and so the size of the community, of the rural communities begin to deteriorate, and it's just not, people are not recognizing, it's just not, not working for them as, as an economy anymore. So they're now starting this, these conversations with each other, is how do we make the driftless region a self-sustaining region? You know, why can't we grow the food that we need instead of importing it in from outside. Why don't we use the resources that we have available to us here in ways that sustain our communities rather than exporting them out? So he seems uh, pretty enthusiastic about the fact 
that the Driftless region can become one of these bioregional communities, you know, that uh, John Takara talks about right here in the Midwest. And I think if if that were to happen, you know, in the next 10 years or so, then, uh, you know, again, there would be it would be an example for other people say, well, if they can do that in the Driftless region, you know, why can't we do it in the bioregion that we live in? Right. That's really encouraging. I'll definitely have to check out that booklet as well. Can you talk a little bit more about the Leopold Center, how that began and and what work you did there or what work you have been doing? Yeah, well, it's an interesting story. And, uh, you know, uh, there was uh, like most changes happen. (laughs) The Leopold Center was created at a time when there were uh, a, a number of factors that played into that. First of all, there were at least three people in the Iowa legislature at that time. Paul Johnson, who was in the House, David Osterberg in the, in the Senate, and Ralph Rosenberg, who was, I think he was also in the House. And these were three people who were... Uh, you know, pretty creative and imaginative and and understood some of the kinds of challenges that we needed to address. And this was at a time when, uh, you know, the the blue baby syndrome had developed. And there were, if I remember right, I think back then in the in the the early 1980s, there were three cases, uh, and one I think was in Iowa and one in Nebraska. And then people began to understand that the blue baby syndrome was because there was too many nitrates, et cetera, in the water, and that that was causing that. And then, of course, there was a huge outcry from the public, you know, we've got to do something about this. So having these three people in the legislature and this outcry from the public is what created the situation that made it possible for the three of them to put together a uh, proposal to the Iowa State Legislature, which they called the Groundwater Protection Act of 1987, you know, that we had to do something about the quality of water. And so they created this together. They created this uh, piece of legislation, which did several things. First of all, they wanted to make sure that everybody understood that the quality of water wasn't just a problem of agriculture. It was, you know, there were other things that were contributing to it as well. And so they they then put a small tax on uh, nitrogen fertilizer and pesticide sales to create a fund. And out of that fund, they funded a part of the agriculture department, which was had concerns or had requirements, were to look at natural systems and how we can make natural systems thrive. So they wanted this division of the agriculture department to address that aspect of it. There was also uh, an awareness that there wasn't adequate information about the impact of these water quality problems and human health. And so they funded a center at the University of Iowa to explore that to do that research. And then the third part of it was that they felt that they needed to have a research center that would explore alternative approaches in agriculture that would reduce uh, the amount of, you know, nitrates in water, et cetera. And they created the Leopold Center as a research center to uh, foster that kind of research with some of the funding they got from these uh, tax dollars from the tax on nitrogen fertilizer and pesticide sales. So, you know, it took, of course, uh, several years for the Leopold Center to design its work, to you know, get up and running. And so it wasn't really until the early 1990s that, you know, our research started to, and, you know, working with researchers and anybody the way the law was set up is that anybody with an educational institution or a nonprofit organization could apply for the research funding to do this this kind of research. 
And then uh, as the researchers started to do this kind of research and started to demonstrate that there were alternative ways to do this, and then, you know, you had a number of farmers that started to do that at the same time. You know, fortunately, we had the Practical Farmers of Iowa, which was a sustainable agriculture group of farmers that were emerging and demonstrating that they could take some of this research and apply it to their own farms in terms of how they farmed and could do that successfully. And the the work of the Leopold Center now has uh, become widely recognized, you know, with currently the legislature is questioning whether or not it should continue to fund the Leopold Center. And so even people from other countries are making their voices heard, saying, wait a minute, you know what the research that the Leopold Center is doing is so important to the future of agriculture, we can't just eliminate them, they have to continue to be around. But anyway, that's the history of how it uh, came about. What are some of the significant um, things that they have accomplished over the years? There are a lot of things that get done, you know, kind of at the local level, and so it doesn't get the same kind of PR that some of the other things do, but one of the projects that we funded way back in the early 1990s was a, along Bear Creek, and this was where researchers figured that if we were to plant buffer strips of perennial grasses and trees along streams in Iowa, you know, if you look at a map of Iowa with the lakes and streams, et cetera, I mean, they're all over the state. So they figured that in order to reduce the amount of nitrates getting into the water, if we planted these perennial buffer strips along these stream banks, then that would capture that. So they demonstrated that, in fact, you know, that uh, happened. And so buffer strips have been gradually now increasingly planted along uh, along streams uh, throughout Iowa. The other thing is that, you know, one of the things that we discovered is that even though these buffer strips would capture a lot of the nitrates of the surface runoff from land, that a lot of the nitrates that were going into the water came through tile drains, you know, were, you know, going back to, you know, the early 1900s, farmers started to drain wetlands, you know, for to increase the acreage, understandably. So the nitrates in that water still went into the stream banks. And so we've also funded some research now where, you know, farmers can put some technologies into the, at the end of the pipes where the water comes in, which then extracts some of the nitrogen. So that's underway now. But, you know, we've still got a water quality problem. There's no question about that. But those are just a couple of examples of the kinds of things that, uh, you know, create, we've always been so fortunate to have creative researchers. We also, one of the other things that have been done more recently now is what we call the, the Prairie Strips Program where researchers are discovering that if you plant some perennial prairie strips, you know, on field borders, and that adds to the diversity of the the uh, pollinators and those kinds of things which are necessary to increase productivity, but also has the effect of taking some of the, uh, you know, capturing some of the nitrates and preventing it from, uh, you know, going into the water. So, you know, it's a process that we're involved in. We still have a long way to go, but we're, I think the main thing that people are recognizing the reason that they're really trying to encourage the governor not to approve this closing of the Leopold Center, because we still have a long way to go, and, and especially with the future challenges coming up, it, the Leopold Center's work is going to become, from their point of view, uh, as important or more important for the next 30 years than it has the past 30 years. Definitely. So how did this latest um, issue come about? I'm not inside the, the legislature, so I can't, uh, I can't answer that question. But 
you know, it came up in like just in the last few days of the legislative session. And I think that, you know, there's a, there's a, I mean, as, as you know, I think there's, there are basically two kinds of cultures now. One is, you know, what I've been talking about and the kind of changes that we need to make. The other culture is that we simply have to, you know, do more technology and science and engineering and math to develop more of the kinds of technologies that can solve these problems and then we're and then we'll we'll solve it. So if you're in that second culture, then you don't think that what the Leopold Center is doing is is that important. And so there have been some pressures from the industrial economy. The other thing that's kind of fascinating in all of this, to me at least, is uh, given the popularity of the Leopold Center's research now, every dollar that we invest in research that researchers do for projects that we fund, they are able to get another almost $5 coming in from foundations and from other economic sources. So if the Leopold Center were to lose its funding, the state would actually lose, you know, roughly $5 million a year, you know, from its current uh, funding source. But, you know, if you're focused on that, you know, how do we just make the current culture work a little better? And uh, all we got to do is, uh, you know, push the pedal to the metal a little harder. Then it seems to people like the Leopold Center's work is not important. And because, you know, we're focused on the transition, not on the, I mean, and this is not to say that the science, technology, engineering, and math is is unimportant, but it's how it gets used, how it gets applied. If you simply use it to, you know, do more of what we've been doing, which, you know, as, as, uh, Einstein mentioned, you know, doing the same thing and expecting different results is, but, you know, what we've been doing is, is a great part of the cause of the problem of water quality. So uh, just doing more of that's probably not going to solve the problem. Right. And it's not like there's not history of many different civilizations <laughs> to look at in yeah. the past <laughs> and how they thrived yeah. or, you know, died. And so yeah. Yeah. Uh, having a, a uh, sane and you know, reasonable assessment of what makes a culture grow and develop and flourish versus um, collapse and into decline and eventually demise is, it's not like we don't know what causes that. We've seen many very successful (laughs) societies come and go in the past. Yeah. And uh, Jared Diamond's work has always impressed me in that regard, you know, based on his study of past civilizations, he discovered that those civilizations that anticipated the changes coming at them and the value of their ecological resources, those were the ones that tended to thrive. Those that failed in that exercise were the ones that tended to collapse. And I think that, you know, and so what I'm, what I, what's important to me about that is that, you know, I'm not trying to predict the future. Uh, none of us are very good at that, but we can anticipate changes and try to get ready for those changes and address those changes and recognize the importance of our ecological resources, you know, in terms of addressing those changes. And then if the changes don't come, you know, it's not a big deal. But if the changes do come and we haven't, you know, gotten a head start preparing for them and the kinds of things we're talking about, that's when uh, we have, uh, you know, some serious problems. Right. And so talking about, I remember you talking about that and I've been um, reading that book. So to assess their current situation anticipate the changes and, and do something that's a huge order to just get the broader culture to 
have a a clear perspective on what the current situation actually is and and, yeah. and what needs to change um to really create something that's going to work for everybody including non-human members of our bio <laughs> biognome and yeah, biosphere yeah. right this is why i think that you know studies like david montgomery's where you identify you know people who are already making these changes and demonstrating that it can work both economically and ecologically that you know that at least is one of the ways to approach this to make that information available to more people and and then we're just talking about the farmers we're not talking about the rest of the economy but but again i think that you know and and if you look at this historically whenever we've made huge changes in terms of the way we approach things it generally starts, you know, in in a rather small way, and then it's the success of that which then drives the changes, which eventually become the predominant. And I think, you know, we're going to see that using the approach of how we partner with nature rather than dominating nature. That's going to be the successful approach, given the kind of changes that we're going to see. But again, whether or not enough of these bottom-up changes take place to deal with the climate change problem, that's, you know, that's the open question. And uh, just in the last five years or so, there's been a, a lot more information out there. And even though there are a lot of climate deniers still out there, the science is very clear at this point. It's like 97% of the scientists, you know, say this is, this is real and we have to deal with this. And approach for dealing with it is increasingly becoming, you know, how people you know, manage not only their farms, but the way in which they live on the planet that uh, is the big factor. And so, again, whether that realization and adaptation takes place in a way that can really reduce the amount of carbon we're putting into the environment to, you know, to change the climate problem is something that, you know, I'm not ready to predict, but I think that there's a possibility. We have, we have the information now. We know how to do it. We have the examples in agriculture and other activities that demonstrate that we can do it and be successful economically. And again, we've got a, a significant number of the millennial generation to understand this, and they're already you know, living their lives in terms of moving in those directions. So I think there's, uh, you know, we've got a lot of good things happening out there, and uh, more of us need to recognize that and support it and make it a part of our own lives. Yeah, we came to this a lot in the last conversation we had about it, it comes back to people and it comes back to to culture. Yeah. And uh, there, uh, David Fleming just wrote a, well, he wrote a book over a period of 25 years or so, but it's called The Lean Economy. And uh, Sean Chamberlain yeah. did sort of a rewrite of it, but he has a, a quote talking about the lean economy as he coins the phrase. It says, the lean economy, in contrast, will depend for its existence on a deep foundation in culture. It's possible to live without yeah. it, but only for a time, like holding your breath yeah. underwater. Yeah, right, exactly, yeah. So we've been in this time where our culture has degraded to a point where it's it's threatening the survival of the species on the planet but there's yeah. all these voices rising up in the millennial generation and you know all of these different things happening where that culture is starting to grow and uh regenerate sort of under the surface and so bringing about that just the, a rapid growth of that culture that understanding that those communities all of that is is really key 
And there, another quote from him that is relevant right now, I'll just read here, is uh, we now need to move from a precious interest in culture as entertainment, often passive and solitary, to culture in its original earthly senses of the story and celebration, the guardianship yeah. and dance that tell you where you are and who is there with you. Yeah, one of the other things that most people don't like to talk about yet is uh, we all, that we also have to deal with in all of this. and. And that gets back to all the Leopold's notion that we're simply planned members and citizens, you know, of the biotic community and not its conquerors. And that is we have to deal with the human population issue, because if we're planned members and citizens, then we have to come to terms with the fact that the planet, the biotic community, if it's going to be thriving, if it's going to be self-renewing, you know, and, and again, as Aldo Leopold uh, put it, he said that uh, nature always abhors the density of any species. And as he put it, if any species reaches a density which puts it out of balance with the rest of the biotic community, then nature finds a way to reduce that density. And then he went on to say, and if one system fails, she will find another. <laughs> and already, already back in the 1940s, he pointed out that we humans were a part of that equation. And so... Uh, you know, this notion that we can, you know, we now have over 7 billion people on the planet and we can go to 11 or 12 people before it kind of levels off. Well, again, if you look at the self-sustaining, thriving, biotic community, you know, and, and again, most of the scholars that are taking this seriously and looking at it, they're saying that probably the human species needs to get, you know, back to maybe uh, 4 or 5 billion people if it's going to be part of a thriving biotic community. So in any case, we have to put the human population uh, on the equation uh, with all these issues that we're talking about. How do you do that? Well, you know, again, there's an article mm -hmm. uh, by Eileen Christ and a couple of other people in which, uh, and it's like a three or four page article. I've forgotten, it's published in one of the journals and uh, I can send you the information uh, if you want because I don't mm -hmm. have the paper right in front of me. But anyway, she goes into, she and her colleagues go into uh, great detail about, you know, why the population issue is so important and that it's a part of solving the many problems that we're facing now and that we have to include that in our uh, projections for the future. So, And, and then, of course, there have been, there've been a number of people who have written about the population issue for, you know, several decades now. So it's not like there isn't information out there, but, you know, I think the reason that it's so difficult for people to come to terms with talking about it even is because as soon as you talk about population, then people think, well, oh, well, you want to make everybody do like they're doing in China, you know, where you can only have one child. And, you know, that's not the only approach. In fact, uh, all of the evidence that we have now is that whenever women are given as much education as possible, when they are provided with contraceptives, when they are empowered, then the birth rate of those populations goes down dramatically. Just in terms of education, if, if girls in a culture are not provided much education, they generally have five to six children in their lifetime. When they get an education, even like through high school level, the birth rate for them goes down to like about two children instead of five to six. You know, in other words, if you simply improve the lives of people through education, through empowerment, through giving them access to birth control, et cetera, we can have a significant impact on uh, the uh, growth of human population over a period of time.
Right. Okay. That's that's helpful. That's a good example. Again, caring for all people and giving everybody the tools to thrive, right? That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it's more of a yeah. moving forward approach that uh, over time than a solution like, like you mentioned in China. So, okay. So uh, what are you looking forward to? What's the work that you're engaged in here for the next couple of years? Yeah, well, you know, um, as you know, I now spend half of my time with the Leopold Center, so that's here in Iowa in the heart mm-hmm. of commodity agriculture, and then the other half uh, with the Stone Barn Center, which is in the middle of the emerging urban agriculture. And uh, I always tell people if I were to plan my career at this point in my life, I couldn't come up with anything better because it's, <laughs> you know, being a part of those two worlds, learning from both worlds. And then uh, again, especially uh, at the Stone Barn Center where, you know, we work pretty intensively with uh, this millennial generation. And, uh, you know, they just inspire me so much given what is important in their lives. Let me just give you one example. The um, couple that manages the farm at Stone Barns, and I think Jack is, uh, what, 40 years old now, but so he's maybe he's beyond the millennial generation, but simply was, certainly was influenced by it. And Jack and Shannon, his wife, they have two children, two young boys, and they would no more think of taking their boys to a shopping mall for an exciting experience. You know, they take them out to the garden. And I've seen these two boys in the garden growing, you know, some of their own food and then harvesting it and taking it to their home where their mother can take that food and prepare it for, you know, part of their dinner for them. And the smiles on these boys' faces are just amazing. You know, this is, this is the satisfying life for them. And so, you know, you see those kinds of cultures uh, emerging now and where people, you know, even dealing with their own children uh, have made some very significant values changes in terms of what they want to expose their children to, you know, to have a thriving and flourishing life for themselves. So uh, those are all just very uh, encouraging uh, for me. Absolutely. So, I, you know, to, to answer your question, that's, I want to do more of that. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I have children and, and there's there's vegetables that they won't eat if I buy it and bring it home. But if I grow it, if it comes out of the garden, they'll they'll eat it. So that's an interesting yeah. <laughs> thing yeah, to see yeah. happen. Yeah. Right, well, exactly. yeah. that's excellent. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk, Fred. It's been really uh, great and insightful again. Do you have any final thoughts you want to leave with us? Well, it's always a pleasure to have these conversations with you. And uh, I don't know if I have a final thought. I think the only thing uh, anybody who listens to this conversation, uh, you know, I would encourage them to, you know, look in their own communities, what if, what's happening in their communities that they feel, you know, is addressing some of the future challenges that uh, we all have to come to terms with and how they can be a part of that. I think that's... Uh, that's the most important thing for all of us. And that was David Bilbrey speaking to Fred Kirschman. You'll find links to the Outer Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture, as well as to the Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture, in the show notes for this episode. Fred's discussion of cover crops reminds me of something my teaching partner, Alexis Campbell, references frequently in our classroom and workshop conversations, that we should value biology over technology. For all of our industrial inputs, Viable, vibrant ecosystems thrived through diverse cycles that we can replicate. The tools of fertilizers, herbicides, and pesticides 
exist in our modern toolbox and can be considered, but the realm of biological resources has barely been tapped, let alone exhausted. We know about the natural farming of Masanabu Fukuoka, or indigenous practices such as the Three Sisters Garden of beans, corn, and squash. And from traveling to visit different permaculture farms, I've seen the former effectively applied to the latter, as done by permaculture practitioner Susanna Lane at her farm, Salamander Springs, in Kentucky. And I see this as a place where we as practitioners can engage in citizen science. To find research like this that's provided by the Auto Leopold Center and apply it into our own practices. To take that big book of permaculture that Bill Mollison has given us and to apply modern findings to it. The additional research that's come out in the nearly 30 years since it was published. There's so much we can do with no-till and cover crops and to dig into all the knowledge coming from our land-grant universities, such as Penn State, here in Pennsylvania, or Iowa State University in Iowa, and everywhere else in between, has some kind of a land-grant university and extension service that we can take advantage of, and to find out what sustainable and regenerative agricultural practices are being used that we can adapt for everything from the homestead to the commercial farm. But with that in mind, what do you think about what Fred shared with David today? Are there places where you can favor more biology over technology in your design? When it comes to how you're living, are you making lifestyle decisions that have an impact in your use of resources or the way that you consume? I'd love to hear from you. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email, show at permaculturepodcast.com. Give me a call, 717-827-6266. Or drop something in the post. It's always interesting and exciting to find a letter from a listener in my mailbox. That address is the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. And from here, before the next episode comes out, I'll be spending this weekend at the Riverside Project for the Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence 2017. If you're in the Mid-Atlantic and would like to come out and spend some time with some fellow permaculture practitioners, it should be a good time. Jeremy Zimmerman is our keynote speaker. He'll be talking about fermentation and community and also giving a hands-on workshop. There'll also be a doula panel talking about the impact that midwives and doulas can have before, during, and after birth. And William Padilla Brown of Mycosymbiotics will be there to talk about mushrooms and fungi. And Jason Gadeski and Juliana Maria Lamana will be running some informal sessions to talk about role-playing games and education and how we can imagine the future together through their game, The Fifth World, and Jen Mendez of Permi Kids. We're running kids' classes and events throughout the weekend, making this a very family-friendly professional event. Find out more at 2017mapc.eventbrite.com. And as always, until the next time, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.